Will you pray with me? Father, as we open your word, I pray not only will it speak to us, but that you will speak to us by your Holy Spirit. For many of us, this topic that Jesus discusses is difficult. And we need to hear his voice. We need to hear his love. And we need to know what you have to say. Not what the world tells us, not what legalistic um, religion at times tells us, but what do you say? And I pray that we'll be open to that. It's in Jesus' name. Take your Bibles, if you will, uh, or your electronic device, and find Matthew chapter 19, the passage that was just read a minute ago. I'm reading a book right now. Um, I know that comes as a surprise to you. Um, And this particular book has a chapter in it about the concept of Jesus being Lord, and particularly in the earliest days of the church, what it meant for the believers to say Jesus is Lord, and what that was originated by. And surprisingly enough, maybe to some of us, it wasn't necessarily because of what was going on in the Roman world at the time, and, and you know, you had to declare that Caesar is Lord. Um, it actually, for those earliest believers, was built upon the foundation of their Jewish heritage. And it went all the way back, because 2,000 years or more before Rome ever existed, the Israelites lived in a very polytheistic pagan world where there were Baals and Ashtoreths and Dagons and all kinds of gods, gods of the field and gods of the river and gods of the weather and gods of the animals and gods of procreation and this God and that God and the other God. And in the midst of all of that, the Israelites had what was known in Hebrew as the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, where they declared the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that one God was over everything. And that's why when you read some of the Old Testament laws, it seems like they jump around because, you know, in one verse they're talking about murder, and the next verse is talking about mildew on your kitchen wall, and the next verse is about adultery, and the next verse is about if your ox falls into a ditch. And, and so it, it seems kind of jumbled up until you realize that in the Israelites' mind, everything in their lives centered around God. He was over everything. And there was nothing in their mentality that was secular versus sacred. There was nothing that was, was under God's supervision and other things that were not under his supervision. Everything had to do with God. And so these early believers took that understanding about God. They had seen and come to understand that Jesus himself was and is God in human form. And so all of a sudden now Jesus becomes that in the Roman world where there were all kinds of gods, the gods of the river and the gods of the, of the harvest and the gods of sex and the gods of this and the gods of that. And then Caesar who represented the highest God over all of that. And they says, no, no, no. There is only one God and his name is Jesus Christ. And so when we come to topics like the issue today on marriage, divorce, singleness, all of that, we have to come to realize that this is not about, is this a sacred or a secular matter? Because for us as believers, everything is sacred. So as we jump into the text and we talk about something that's very practical in many ways, I also hope we'll recognize the fact that God has a great interest in how we deal with our relationships in life. So in Matthew chapter 19, 
we start out with a little introductory section in the first two verses, and then we have two questions that the Pharisees bring to Jesus and his two answers, and then we'll kind of go from there. But let's just start with that. So in verses one and two, it says this. When Jesus had finished this instruction, now that's going back to what he had said in chapter 17 and 18, particularly about uh, forgiveness and restoring and, and being in real harmony with one another. When he had finished this instruction, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So Jesus has left Galilee, never to go back there again. He's heading toward Jerusalem, and we know what's going to happen when he arrives in Jerusalem. And so he's on his way, and he is on the east side of the River Jordan. He comes around and goes south on the east side, and he's about to come back into Judea. And in verse 3, it says some Pharisees approached him to test him. And here's the first question. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Now, what an interesting way to pose a question. And I want you to see both <laughs> the nerve of that question as well as the nature of the question. First of all, look at the nerve that they had. Here Jesus has just been healing these large crowds of people. It said in verse 2 that large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And, but rather than the Pharisees saying, tell us how you get this authority to heal these people or, or tell us why it is that you believe that you're the son of God or tell us what, what all this uh, death and resurrection conversation that we've been hearing means. They focus on asking, so tell us about this law from Deuteronomy chapter 24 about a man divorcing his wife. Is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? The nerve of them, when Jesus is doing these amazing miracles, to try and bring a question like that. But look at the nature of their question. You can see that in the way Matthew poses it. It says that the Pharisees approached him in verse 3 to test him. Same word can be used to tempt. In other words, they're trying to catch Jesus in something. And their question, the reason they're doing that is because there were basically two trains of thought about divorce in the Jewish world of Jesus' day. One said you could only divorce someone if there was some form of, of um, immorality or adultery, uh, some, some spiritual issue that broke the marriage bond. The other school said, no, you can divorce her for anything that you don't like. I mean, she can burn your breakfast. You can find a better looking woman and you can divorce her and marry someone else. And so the Pharisees thought, well, we'll get Jesus to take a side on one or the other. They hoped he would take the side of the more conservative. Why? Well, do you remember last week? Remember what happened to the last guy that said divorce was wrong and happened to say it in the ears of Herod? Got his head lopped off. So they're thinking if we can get Jesus to side with the conservative view about marriage, they knew he had done it earlier back in Matthew chapter 5. If we can get him to publicly say that he believed that divorce was wrong, then they could go to Herod and say, ah, here's someone else you need to take care of. Worst case scenario would be if he took a liberal side on this thing and said, oh yeah, you can divorce anytime you want to, they would be able to show him as being someone who is not a law abider. So either way, they thought they were going to get him in a trap. But look how Jesus answers the question. It's amazing. In verse 4, Jesus answers them. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Look at what Jesus does. The first thing he does is he goes back to the Bible. 
But he doesn't go to Deuteronomy 24. He doesn't set up a debate with them about Deuteronomy 24, which is where they had drawn this law of Moses about divorce. He goes all the way back to the foundation principle, to Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He goes back to the original purpose of God in bringing people together. It's almost like he says to them, do you know how to read the scripture, but you've forgotten your ABCs? And the A of marriage is God brings a man and a woman together and brings them into unity together. There was no divorce in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which he alludes to in verse 4, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2, Verse 24, almost verbatim about a man leaving his father and mother, joining to his wife, becoming one flesh. So Jesus goes back to the original principle. He says, you know what? There was no divorce in the Garden of Eden. Now, Jesus could have talked about um, homosexuality. He could have talked about other issues, but he decided to to talk about unity. And then when he gets to verse 6, he gives a little short commentary on what he has said. He says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. And if you read those three verses together, you hear Jesus's theme, and it was all about unity. He says five different times. Notice what he says. Look at your Bible with me. He says, he made them male and female. A man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two become one flesh. What God has joined together Man must not separate again and again and again and again. He talks about this concept of unity between a man and his wife or a husband and wife. This unity, this combining them together as one. Now, that's pretty obvious. What's not so obvious about that is the fact that in and through all of this, God is the focus. It's not so much about what a husband can and can't do, what a man can and can't do, what a wife can and can't do. The focus is on what God does. It's God that brings the man and the woman together. It is God that in the Garden of Eden, in that perfect situation, laid the foundation of how God brings a man and a woman together. Talk about e-harmony. This is Elohim harmony, all right? God does the work of bringing a couple together, joining them as one, and God's math is one plus one plus one equals one. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Father plus Son plus Holy Spirit equals one God. And then one plus one also equals one. That's the doctrine of marriage. That when God brings a man and a woman together, that becomes one unit. It should not be separated. Well, the Pharisees heard that, but that's not what they heard. They heard, we got him. He's taken aside. So they go, so let us ask you a follow-up question to that. Look at verse 7. Why then? Can you hear the snap, they thought. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? If we're not supposed to have divorce, if that's not an option, why did Moses give that command? And Jesus immediately responds with two corrections and a command. The first correction is he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. You see that difference? They asked in verse 7, why did Moses command us? But that wasn't the point at all. It was he allowed you, he permitted you to divorce. You see, what Jesus wanted them to understand is it would be like a car. N.T. Wright 
uh, British theologian, gives a great analogy of this. He says, cars aren't made to have accidents. Cars are made to drive down the road and be safe and carry you where you need to go. But because people have accidents, there are traffic laws that regulate what happens when that accident occurs. So in essence, Jesus is saying, God didn't create marriage because he wanted you to get divorced. And so he created, it's because God knew this was going to happen, he set up boundaries for it. And so the first thing he wants to understand is this is not, this was never God's intention. It wasn't God's will. It wasn't God's plan for a couple, for a married couple to be divorced. But he knew it was going to happen, and so he permitted it under certain circumstances. And the second correction is why he permitted it. He says right there in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. God says, because your hearts are sinful and you're going to do this, God set up a system. And you know, as I was thinking and praying about that, I was thinking about 1 John 1, 9. Why does God give us 1 John 1, 9? Why would he give us a way to confess our sins after we become believers? Because he knows we're going to do it. And so he has to give us a way to then find forgiveness for those sins that we commit after we have become believers. And so in the same way, God says, Jesus says to them, it wasn't God's intention that a marriage should end in a divorce, but because of your sinful hearts, God has allowed you a way to deal with this situation. Because you see, in essence, what Deuteronomy 24 was all about, let me just kind of give you a summary. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses said, if you decide for, for a particular reason that you need to divorce your wife, and if your wife marries another man, and he becomes dissatisfied with her, whatever, he divorces her, and you want to take that woman back to you, you can't do that. It's not allowed. It wasn't about the grounds for divorce. It wasn't about how to divorce. It was about, really, I think, and catch this, it really was about a warning to that first husband saying, you better be careful when you choose to divorce your wife because one day you may want her back, and you can't do that. You see, that was what Deuteronomy 24 was all about. Moses was just building this instruction on what he knew was the tendency of people to do. So, I said he gave two corrections. One was, it wasn't a command, it was an allowance or a permission. And secondly, the reason was because of the hardness of their hearts. By the way, you notice he says, your hearts. He didn't say our hearts like a lot of preachers will do. A lot of times I'll say, you know, we do this. Jesus didn't say that because Jesus never sinned. He never had a hard heart. But also, I think it's important to understand that this is because the problem is not marriage. The problem is with sin in our hearts. And the problem with divorce is the sinfulness of our hearts. And I think we can stop right here and let me just make a statement. There's all kinds of reasons why people get divorces today, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. But the one thing we have to acknowledge is that every, now listen carefully, hear me say this clearly, every divorce, every breaking of a marriage covenant has somewhere in it sinfulness. It could be that one spouse has sinned against the other by being maritally unfaithful. It could be that the two spouses refuse to listen to each other. They don't work together to try to make their marriage stronger. But at some point, that divorce has at its root, at its core, some kind of sin that then leads to that severance of the marriage. 
So we're going to talk about that some more in just a minute. But think about that, the fact that there's not something that is not a moral issue. It is something that is. And by the way, Jesus then, after giving these two corrections, gives a command. Look at what he says in verse 9. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for the cause of sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, I see two surprises in this. First of all, I'm surprised that Jesus gave any grounds for divorce. He could have easily said, if you're going to follow me, we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. We're going to go back to God's original plan, and there will never be, divorce will never be heard of, it will never happen, it's not going to occur, it's not going to be allowed, it's never going to occur. But Jesus does give an exception, and that exception is for sexual immorality. Now, let's take out that phrase for just a minute and hear what Jesus says is the overarching rule about marriage. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. The other thing that surprised me about that is Jesus' authority. He says, I tell you. We talked about that a little bit last week. The fact that when Jesus says, I tell you, what that is saying is, I have the authority, all authority, belongs to Christ. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over our marriages, just like he's Lord over the church. I say to you. But now notice, there is this exception, except for sexual immorality. Well, that leads us to 1,000 questions. A thousand questions we could ask about this, and I'm only going to have time to answer four of them, okay? The other 996, we'll have to wait for another time. But let me answer these four. Number one, what is meant by sexual immorality? Okay, the word in the Greek for this has to do with any kind of sexual relationship that is outside of the bonds of marriage. It primarily is adultery, but it could be other forms of sexual activity that is not part of the marriage bond. That word can mean anything from, and forgive me, I don't want to offend anybody, but it can infer bestiality, homosexuality, um, again, adultery, any kind of sexual activity that is not part of the marriage bond, Jesus says, is possibly grounds for divorce. Second question, why is that the one exception? Because that is the one thing that breaks the bond, not only between the husband and wife, but also the commitment that was made to God. Almost all of you have been here long enough that you've been through at least one wedding that we do. And whenever I perform a wedding, I always ask my couples to make two vows. And the first vow they make is to God, because I want them to understand that God is at the center of this covenant that they're entering as a husband and wife. It's not just the man and the woman promising each other something. God, they are promising God something. And so this is the one thing that will break that vow, that bond, that commitment they've made to God and to one another. Third question, is adultery the only exception? Well, it is here. The only exception that Jesus gives is this one. However, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives us another example, and that has to do with abandonment, especially between a married spouse and an unmarried spouse. Let's say two, believer, two people are not Christians. One of them becomes a believer. The non-believer says, I don't have anything to do with you anymore. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to throw you out. We're going to get a divorce. I don't want to be around you anymore. And Paul gives an exception. Now, let me, let me say this. I believe that the reason God inspired Paul to give us that exception is to remind us that there are times when we have to very carefully and prayerfully as the church look at circumstances 
let me just give you a very easy example. A man is physically abusing his wife repeatedly. How could we say, oh, you should stay in that relationship. Oh, but if he commits adultery, you get a free ticket out of the marriage. No. We have to carefully and prayerfully look at what is the sin that is causing the rift in the relationship. Can that sin be confessed, repented of, and corrected or not? And very gently look at circumstances that would lead to the severance of a marriage. But it should never be something that is done lightly or without a biblical spiritual cause. Question number four, does the sin of adultery necessitate divorce? Absolutely not. No. Now, in the case of an unrepentant spouse, the one, say, who has committed the adultery is not repentant. They're not, they're, they don't confess it. They don't ask for forgiveness. They don't want to restore the relationship. That may be the best option. And it is allowed. But you've got to remember, you turn back to chapter 18, and Jesus talks about forgiveness. How many times do we forgive? And how do we restore relationships when the relationship has been broken? And so there may be times when a spouse will choose the route rather than divorcing that adulterous spouse if the spouse is repentant, they ask for forgiveness, they're willing to do what they can to rebuild that trust. That is a huge, huge gift of grace. But you see, in many ways, it's just like what happens in the life of the church. Because in the life of the church, you will have someone who sins, and they're not repentant. And after the church has done everything they can to try to restore that person, if they just absolutely refuse to repent, they need to be put away from the church so that they can understand the consequences of their actions. But the minute that that unrepentant member of the church understands the consequences of their sin, they confess their sin, they repent of that sin, they're brought back into fellowship again. The same way with the marriage. It can be that a person has sinned against their spouse, they're not repentant, and so the, the severance of the marriage occurs, they come to their senses, they recognize what they've done, they ask for forgiveness, and the relationship can be restored. But it doesn't command that divorce must happen. Well, what happens next? What do the Pharisees say after that? We don't know. Because at this point, they just kind of disappear off the scene. Maybe they just kind of slithered away with their little traps, un, unused and unbroken and, 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 and un, ineffective. But the disciples step in, and they follow up with a statement in verse 10 that leads us to a higher view of what this is all about. His disciples said to him in verse 10, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry at all. Well, I added the at all. It's better not to marry. They're saying, wow, if this is what it means to be married, maybe we should all just stay single. Now, were they being chauvinist? They say, well, if I can't divorce a woman anytime I want to, why even bother marrying her to begin with? Well, maybe. Uh, were they being realists? Wow, if it's that serious a bond, maybe it'd be better not to take that risk. Maybe. Or were they just misunderstanding what marriage really was about? Maybe they didn't realize how involved God was in that marriage bond. Maybe they had forgotten that. That's probably the case. I think they just didn't get what Jesus said. They didn't understand that marriage was not just about a contract between a man and a woman. It was about a covenant between three persons, a man, a woman, and God himself. And they're going, 
wow, if that's the case, and if we run that risk, maybe we just shouldn't divorce at all. And Jesus shifts their conversation. You notice how he does that? He doesn't say, oh, no, no, guys, no, no. Marriage is wonderful. Don't you know how wonderful it is to to hold your wife's hand as you walk along the shores of the Mediterranean and listen to the waves lap up and the doves flying around the, uh, the, the cliffs of, you know, and watch the sun go down on the horizon? It's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he turns to what they say about singleness and responds to that. He gives a eulogy to eunuchs, as it were. Look at what he says in verse 11. He told them, not everyone can accept this saying. Now, what's the this saying? He's not talking about what he had said about marriage. He's talking about what they said about being single. Maybe we should just be single, Jesus said. Now, wait a minute. Not everyone can take that saying, but only those it has been given to. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way. Now, that's metaphorically speaking. It doesn't mean that they have self-mutilated or anything like that. He's talking about the fact that they have chosen either not to be married or maybe they have chosen not to remarry after a divorce or after being widowed because of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Let me take just a few minutes and talk about this issue because it's very, very important. I think it's important for us in the church. It's important for us as evangelical believers to understand. Jesus is saying to his disciples and through them to us that there are some people who are willfully, volitionally single. They have sensed God's call in their lives to live their life as a single adult. For the sake of the gospel, he says. For the sake of the kingdom. In other words, they have come to a point in their lives where they have felt God's call to them and they have sensed that the best way for them to live out their call to serve God is by being single instead of being married. It's just like our calling to serve God in our vocation. I can feel a sense of God calling me to give him my life to serve him. And so does Russ Frank. And so does Nancy Young. And so does Sarah Schaefer. And so Russ lives out that sense of calling by being a godly accountant in his firm. Nancy does that by being a godly legal secretary. Sarah does it by being a godly employee at a clothing store. I do it being a godly pastor. You see, the way we live out that sense of calling may be different, but the calling is the same. And in the same way, there are many of us who are called through our marriages to serve God and serve his kingdom, but there are others who are called of God to live their lives as singles, and that should be honored. That should be elevated. That should be respected. It doesn't mean that they should be a nun or a monk and live in a convent or a monastery. It means as they live out their lives, they serve God's kingdom. And that's the broader point. And I, and I, wanted, I wanted to write it down exactly the way I wrote it in my notes so that I could say it to you exactly the way I intended it. This is the point I want to make. This is the higher view of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven should be so important that it should seem perfectly normal if someone would want to give up marriage for it. 
It should be so normal for us that the kingdom of God is more important than everything else in our lives that we wouldn't be surprised if someone feels that sense of calling means that they're going to abandon marriage in order to serve God and serve his kingdom. And that is so important for us to see because we have this tendency in the church to so elevate marriage and family that we make single adults and single young adults in our church feel like that somehow or another they haven't quite arrived yet. And as I was talking to Christine Miller the other night about this, and, and I said, you know, it's interesting that in some ways it is the same thing for a single person, not just to be single, but to be single and celibate, as it is for a married person, not just to be married, but be married and faithful. Because in both cases, whether we are single or whether we are married, if we are living under the call of God in our lives, our role is to be testimonies and witnesses to those around us. Because I can say, although I'm not single, I've talked to a lot of you single adults, we live in a world where a lot of people choose to be single because they don't want the commitment of a marriage. It has nothing to do with their feeling about God. It has to do with the fact that they want to be able to have a relationship with whoever they want to whenever they want to. And so they don't commit themselves to being committed to just one person. And in the midst of that, a Christian single keeps their body in service to Christ and in service to the kingdom. And a married couple keeps their bond and their commitment to Christ and their bond of marriage pure and holy so that both single and married can be testimonies to Christ. And so we as Christians should honor those who have felt the call to be single. We should pray for them and we should remind ourselves that they are fully whole and one because the end of the matter is this, that God gives us a high view of marriage and a high view of singleness, but the highest view is the gospel. And we should be able, whether we are single, married, divorced, to understand that ultimately it all comes back putting the gospel first. So let me close with this. If you are not yet married and you feel that God has called you to a married life, or if you are married and you are still with your first spouse, whether it's for a year or 36 years or 55 years or more, understand that in God's plan, the general rule is divorce is not an option. God has brought the two of you together, and he has done the math. One plus one equals one. Or if you're not yet married, he is right now crafting your future spouse. And single young adults, students, one of your main prayers every day, every day should be, God, I pray for the person that you will bring me to and bring to me someday to be my spouse. That You will prepare him or her right now, today, to be your child and a good partner for me. And for those of us who are married, to pray every day, God, keep us faithful to the covenants that we have made. For those of you who have been through a divorce, I want you to understand that somewhere in the seed of that divorce, there was a sin. It may have been your ex-spouse's sin. I'm not saying that. It may have been but that both of you sinned. The divorce occurred, and now you have moved down the road. You cannot go back and undo what has happened since then. 
the one thing I would encourage you to do is first of all identify what was the sin that led to our divorce. And if the sin is something that you did, first of all confess that to God and ask him to forgive you if you haven't already. I know that many, 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 many of you couples have already been through that and you can walk clean and pure before the Lord. But if you haven't, go to God first and then go back to your ex-spouse. They may not want to hear what you have to say, but you need to say it. You need to say, I've come to realize that I sinned and my sin led to our divorce and I just want to ask you to forgive me. I know we can't go back and undo what's been done. We've moved farther down the road. But I just want you to know that I'm sorry. And then you can go on whether you are remaining single after that divorce, whether you have been remarried or are choosing to be remarried. You can go into that knowing that your sin has been forgiven. When we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. If you are living in a second marriage, a marriage after your first marriage, please don't think that you have to live the rest of your life in an adultery situation. That is not the case at all. When you left your first spouse and remarried, there were some consequences to that. But you can live your life today in purity because God says my mercies are new every morning. The bottom line is, beloved, whatever your situation in life, remember, the key is, is the gospel first? Is his kingdom first and foremost in your life? If it's not, Let's deal with that today. Let's pray. Father, this was not a passage on the doctrine of marriage. Just a few verses. This does not mean that Jesus doesn't honor marriage or singleness. He does. But ultimately, Father, this is about understanding that we must always put you first. That our marriages, just like our relationship with you, under your umbrella. Our lives are under your umbrella. And whether we are feeling called to a life of singleness, whether we be, are being called to a life of marriage, whether we are being called to a life with children or without children, ultimate question, Father, is are we putting the gospel first in our lives? Are we putting your kingdom first in our lives? Or are we putting marriage or family or work or money or houses or lands ahead of you. There may be some of us whose heads are bowed right now before you for whom that's the case. And if so, Father, I pray that today they will recognize the fact that anything that comes ahead of you must be submitted to your lordship or else you are not lord. You must be lord of all. There's nothing that is secular in our lives. Everything is sacred. Everything is under your protection. And so, Father, in this moment right now, with our heads bowed before you, may we say in our hearts, Jesus is. To that end, we take this text, married, single, divorced, remarried, and we find grace, and we find hope, and we find joy. As we seek your kingdom first and foremost. For it's in Jesus' name.